Welcome to Reading Between the Reels. I'm Matt Leader. And I'm Craig Dickinson. Today on the show, we are deconstructing Star Wars Episode 8, The Last Jedi, with our special guest, Dan Zare. Dan is a fellow educator, the co-creator, host, and brand manager of Coffee with Kenobi, and a writer for IGN, Star Wars Insider, and StarWars.com. Dan is also one of the writers of the Star Wars book, a speaker, an entrepreneur, and an all-around good guy. Welcome to the show, Dan. Well, thank you so much, Craig and Matt, for that gracious intro. I am psyched for this, and not only did I rewatch the movie, but my son Mason and I just listened again to your The Force Awakens commentary, so I am as ready as I can possibly be. Awesome. Very nice, very nice. Uh, so we'd like to jump in, just to kind of talk about, before we get into the mechanics, talk about just our overall thoughts on the film. So, Dan, why don't you... Uh, since you're the guest, why don't you lead us off with what are your kind of your overall thoughts and impressions after this rewatch? Uh, I can sum it up for you in one word. Masterpiece. The Last Jedi is an absolute masterpiece from start to finish. It's, it's the most mature Star Wars film ever made. It's the most intellectual Star Wars film ever made. And I think it says more about what it means to be a human than, than most pieces of fiction. I think it's, 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 it's genius. So I liked it <laughs> just a little bit. Well, I mean, I liked it too. Uh, I usually try and find what I don't like. That's the hardest thing I think with some of these is fi- figure out what are my, what are my quibbles, right? Cause I, I, I do like, I love the film. I've seen it multiple times. I own it. I, I enjoy it. I, I defend it vigorously. Uh, but looking at some things that like, what are some things maybe I would do differently uh, is one thing that I looked at for this one. And you know, the, the way that it starts right after force awakens is very interesting to me, but I ultimately find that it's pretty limiting in the way that you do things. I felt like it kind of forced the narrative into into some uh, some corners that I think they had kind of a hard time getting out of, and some of the things with with character development that I think I would have maybe they could have done some of the they wouldn't have to do so much heavy lifting if they would have allowed it to breathe a little bit. Uh, I think ultimately it does succeed in that. Uh, especially in regards to, to Finn and Poe, which we'll talk about as we get into this a little bit. But I, I just, I'm always kind of curious why they chose to start it right there. Uh, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would necessarily have made that choice uh, if, given, if given the choice. But overall, do you love it? Like it? What do you rank it among your Star Wars films? Because I have, I have certainly plenty of things I could quibble on as well. Sure. Um, which I figure we'll get to later in the show. But but overall, you, it's one of your favorites, I thought. Yeah, no, it's, it is. It's in my top three. Okay. It's in my top three. And I think, I think Matt, we decided, like, after, after we do uh, Rise of Skywalker, we'll unveil our, our official, like, <laughs> Ooh. Top, top, top list, top 11, put them in order. A ranking, yeah. A ranking, there you go. Uh, so, Matt, what about you? What are some of your overall thoughts on the film? Well, I, I tend to agree with Dan that I think it's probably the most mature single film in the Star Wars canon. Um, I think the character work in particular, to me, this feels more like a character study than a true adventure film. Um, even though it starts with action, a lot of the drama comes from the characters, their choices, and the decisions they have to make. So for me, it in some ways, it feels feels heavier in a way where Force Awakens was such a light and fun film. It felt very light on its feet, moving like quick pace-wise. You're going from beat to beat to beat, and you don't have much downtime. Uh, And this film has way more reaction 
where you, you really get a lot of characters' reaction to the events that are going on. And I think it it slows it down just a little bit. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, like, I love having a movie on in the background when I'm just doing random stuff around the house. And when I do, I almost never choose The Last Jedi as just a film to have on. I'll choose Solo or Rogue One, Force Awakens, one of the original trilogy, prequels, whatever. But Last Jedi hasn't been one. And it's been interesting because, you know, we have a little bit of space and a little bit of time since the movie came out. And for me, you know, rewatching it, I think it's because it's a movie that really demands your attention. It really demands that you closely watch it and really try and observe what's going on. And so I do think it is a very mature film. I think the filmmaking that Ryan uses, Ryan Johnson, is really fantastic. Um, you know, I was thinking about this where uh, that that opening scene, if you look at each shot, almost every single piece of it serves a purpose. It clarifies the geography of where the characters are. Uh, it redefines or, or sets the character's goal. It sets the stakes uh, when the bombers are, are all being blown up and you're down to your last one. And, you know, uh, Captain Kennedy is has the the gun trained on, on Leia. You know what's about to happen. And I think that right there is a masterpiece in cinematic language of, of you know, showing what these characters are, are going through. And so I think it's it's so well constructed, but it's also kind of heavy. It's not something that's a it's a light rewatch for me. Yeah, just to kind of add on to that a little bit um, about the pacing and the editing was something in, in this film that I I find is just it's brilliant. You know, you talked about knowing what the characters are thinking uh, and, and really being able to tell what the situations are. I love how much. Uh, you have characters referenced right before the editing cuts to them. I mean, one in particular, you think of uh, where Poe and, and Finn are reunited and, and the first words out of Finn's mouth are, where's Ray?" And then it immediately cuts to Ray on the island. And that happens repeatedly where they're referencing, well, what are, where are we going to go do this? And then they show it. Uh, things like that. And then you have the, the great intercutting between uh, Kylo and Leia back and forth when he's about to blow her up and trying to decide whether or not he's he's going to kill her and it just it almost bleeds into each other the way the editing is done it's like it's a wipe but it's a really subtle wipe back and forth and you can just you can feel the emotions because of how well it's put together that he's feeling her and she's feeling him and in the conflict that's in, within him and using you know using these wipes as jump cuts I just thought was a brilliant choice uh, for this film Lucasian even. A little bit. Yeah. Were there any things that uh, stood out to you, Dan, uh, cinematography-wise? Uh, anything with Ryan's camera work that was different oh, or unique? Oh, gosh. Well, it's interesting you mentioned this. My son actually just graduated from film school in Chicago uh, with an emphasis on cinematography and lighting. So <laughs> I, I love watching this movie with him because he will break it down because I, I can certainly construct a, a mythology or a story. But I, that's certainly something where I feel I'm lacking in. What I know is that when I watch this film, it is, of course, looks like a, a beautiful work of art. But what stands out to me particularly, and even lighting something like this studio, which can be challenging in and of itself, is the great fight sequence in the Snow's, in Snoke's throne room with all that brilliant red, the way it's lit and orchestrated and angled is just... It is, an, it's, I mean, it's, it's repetitive, but it's an absolute work of art. It's just It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous, very, very difficult to do, painstaking, 
but the results speak for themselves. Yeah, that's definitely one of my favorite scenes uh, with the fabric that catches on fire and as it's raining down, kind of creating that bokeh effect where it's kind of out of focus, uh, falling down around them. Um, you know, you, you talked about the the fight choreography, and I think it fits so brilliantly with, uh, you know, the tension building that he's creating in that moment where it's building up, building up, building up, and it finally just kind of explodes uh, in yes. one of the one of the most controversial moments, you know, I mean, this is a controversial movie. I I don't personally see why it's as controversial as some people think it is, but like with Snoke dying, I think a lot of people were upset by that. Uh, And I mean, what do you think, Dan? I mean, what, (laughs) what do you think about Snoke's death? I should say. What I think about Snoke's death is that it's not Snoke's story. It doesn't matter. You know, I think uh, the, the the lack sometimes for, there's some of course there's a lot of criticism of this movie and some of it is is well founded and intellectually honest and full of critical thinking and some is just intellectually lazy uh, you know everyone who complained that the Force Awakens was too much a carbon copy of the originals suddenly wanted Snoke to be the Emperor which would be a carbon copy of the originals this is not Snoke's story it's not about Snoke who cares about Snoke I don't care about Snoke in fact. And those, the rise of Kylo Ren comics when he's wearing like that Renaissance robe, I just find him to be creepy and odd. So when, uh, in this film itself, he works great, but he is a an, sort of a catalyst to propel Kylo Ren to a different phase of his life. But he is not the be-all, end-all. He's not the big bad. And, and personally, if we're going to poke a little bit towards the future, I wish the rise of Skywalker's main enemy was Kylo Ren versus himself the whole time, and there was no big bad. So to me, Snoke is a means to an end, an incredible performance by Andy Serkis, but he serves what he needs to serve, and I don't, I don't, I think anything more would be a waste of time. What are your thoughts, Craig? Yeah, no, I, t- I totally agree on that. It was one of the one of the thoughts I had earlier that uh, I want to make sure we get to was that Kylo is so conflicted in this film, and really, he's looking at other people to define him, and you know, I find find that's really interesting that he has. You know, he kind of graduates out of that by taking Snoke out of the picture. Like that's how he sees how he does it. And it's very much the same way he did with Han in the previous film. It's like he feels yeah. like I have these people in my way. And as long as I get rid of those, then I can kind of self-realize. And he's continually looking for that in the wrong places uh, versus Ray, who's incredibly self-assured in her own identity, even though you know, she has these little trials here and there. And ultimately she sees, as we'll get to, you know, the mirror cave that she finds that she's the only person that she really needs. But I, I love that dichotomy between the two of them uh, as far as identity goes and and having that self-confidence, which you'd, you'd figure, you know, if if anyone would have the confidence, it would be someone who is, you know, the son of Han Solo, you know, <laughs> who's like this kind of preeminent, cocky, full of confidence uh, person. But it's interesting that they went the other way. Well, and think about this. Think about famous athletes. We're all big sports fans. Like, I don't know Michael Jordan's sons personally, but I wouldn't think that would inspire me with confidence. I feel like that would inspire me with this in, insane amount of insurmountable pressure that no one could possibly live up to, or or Magic Johnson's kids, or, or whoever, Barry Bonds, you know, less famous athlete ever. I feel like one thing that they did get right with him, and this extrapolates into the literature as well, is that because of who his uncle is, because of who his mother is, because of who his dad is, how could he possibly live up to the three of them? No wonder he's got this insane inferiority complex. 
Yeah, and that does make sense. So it that does feel like a realistic portrayal, like based on those right. you know those real life art um, analogies you just made. Uh, one thing with with cinematography that I wanted to, to point out uh, was the force time connections and the way that they're shot as if the characters are in the same space. And you know, if, mm-hmm. if you get into um, some of the behind the scenes material, you find that that was actually a choice. You know that that Ryan Johnson made too was to have the actors on set together. So. When they're both on, you know, they're both on Skellig Michael when she's talking to, you know, to Kylo when he's on the Star Destroyer. And then she's in the room with him. Like, in real life, they're doing that. So that you have these reactions that feel real because they were literally in the same space. But they've somehow uh, to duplicated that same feeling with the shot, counter shot uh, in those force time connections. One thing that I Like us I right don't now know, on the show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what I want to Thanks see for you guys. flying so me out. That was really nice. Yeah. <laughs> on, on, set, yeah. yeah. on set talent. Uh, and just to add to that layer of realism, you know, I find it really interesting that that Luke can see them. You know, I, I think that's a thing that's kind of underrated. I don't really hear a lot of commentary about oh, that. That you know, there's a little bit of before. Yeah, that, you know, having her see him and 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 he and him see her it makes sense that they'd be able to connect each other through the force. We kind of see that a little bit in like Empire, for instance, where Luke and, and Vader are kind of communicating. And like we know they're talking and we can kind of assume that they're seeing each other, much like we saw with Kylo and, and, and Leia in this film. But when he bursts, when Luke bursts in and sees them together in the little hut holding hands, it's like, well, there's a whole other level of power to this. Uh that I didn't, I don't think I'd, I'd caught that necessarily before. I hadn't thought deep about it in any case. That, that was one of the things uh, I wrote down because even the first time I saw it, it struck me as how beautifully simple the the force time was, cinematically speaking. Where you know just that simple rule of of one eighty, where you know if Kylo's looking from left to right, Ray's looking the opposite way. The audience will automatically understand and put the two and two together and and they know what's going on. And it was just so simple. But one thing that I always loved was when Ray is, you know, on, on Skellig Michael and she's in the rain and the the water splashing everywhere. And then Kylo has that little drop of water on his glove. And it's such just a simple little clue to this whole universe of power that this could unlock. And is I think one of the the best parts of um, Rise of Skywalker is when they reference that directly and transfer the lightsaber in Rise of Skywalker. And so that's one of the parts where I feel like Rise of Skywalker kind of builds off of uh, Last Jedi. It doesn't do it nearly enough, but I think, you know, credit where credit is due. I think that it's it's really interesting. My favorite moment, one of my favorite moments, because there's several uh, in the film, is when Kylo and Rey touch hands. And that that final force time connection with them, and I think it's so extraordinary because it's such an intimate moment between these two characters, and yet nothing's really going on. It, it's more of this kind of emotional and intellectual, uh, almost spiritual kind of through the force relationship that they're slowly building with each other, and I find it really, really unique. Uh, the shot there where the fingertips are coming together, and then the force theme plays. And like that is one of the most beautiful uses of the soundtrack in that little moment. And it's a perfect mm-hmm. example when we're talking about this with our kids because you play different music over that and the completely different vibe that you get and a completely different scene. It's very personal. And like you said, there's a level of intimacy, but it's not romantic. It's just, yeah. just like a, a connection because they both have 
this insane power that that no one really can understand because they don't they're not in the same age bracket or uh, place of experience. Obviously, Kylo Ren's experiences are immensely different from Ray's, but they both have this incredible power and connection, and the force is both spiritual and physical at the same time, and they're able to experience that in very unique ways that we have never seen before. So that, so that brings a very unique bond that, that is hard to for anyone to relate to, even the great Jedi Master Luke Skywalker. And I think that's a stroke of, of genius and and certainly a lot of ambiguity there that is when, to me, Star Wars is at its best. Yeah, and it, for me, you know, there's this is a, a, a movie that's filled with themes all over the place. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. some, I think, are not quite as successful as others. But one that really struck me this time is especially... Luke's lessons about the Force and 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 Ryan's uh, script and and what the movie is trying to say about what the Force is and more than anything, I kept getting the Force is connection. It's almost like empathy, if I had to put like a name to it for our real world. But it's the ability to connect with another being or another entity. The first time that we see Broom Kid, uh, we see him defending through the binoculars that Rose is looking through one of the um, Fathers. And I, th- I just think like, you know, looking back, we know that kid is force sensitive and he sees the father in pain and he tries to do something about it, which is the kind of the exact opposite of what Luke does when he cuts him off or cuts himself off from the force is he can't bear the shame of, of what he almost did to Ben. He can't bear the shame of, of talking to Leia and, and facing his own failure and the failure with his nephew. And it's not really until you know he makes that reconnection back to the Force, where he reconnects with the people around him. That's that's the scene I think that's immediately before he comes in and sees Ray and Kylo touching hands. And mm-hmm. it's even more transgressive, you know, when Luke has cut himself off so far from everyone around him. And and that's to me also one of the deeply human and deeply heroic things about Luke in this movie. And one of the things I love about it is that Lucas is a true human. I mean, he's he's flawed. He struggles. Uh, you know, I, I've told this to Craig before. You know, I think Luke is the most powerful person in the galaxy at this time. So it only makes sense that, you know, the person that he fights is himself. Absolutely. It shouldn't be any other way because you've got the great thing we've, that we've talked about and heard other people talk about before that. The Superman complex, you know, there's nothing more effective at uh, impacting the big bad than the conflict of man versus self. And the fact that Luke, and this is why the thing that I love about this movie with Luke Skywalker is that of course Luke is this way. He shouldn't be any other way because if he's like, he is at the end of the Mandalorian season two, then there is zero threat to the galaxy. He's going to walk in, take on those ATM sixes and Kylo Ren, boom, boom, done. Who wants lunch? No big deal. But because of that great doubt, we know as adults, uh, with kids, both our own and students, that you learn lessons throughout your life, but you're never done. You're always learning lessons. That's what I love about what Rebels did. Every season, Kanan had to relearn new things that you didn't think he had to learn, but he did, and he had to learn them in profoundly different ways. Luke has to understand that there's more to his life than the legacy that he built for himself. There are other lessons, the pride, the hubris, the lack of interpretation, the adherence to strict dogma without critical thinking all come into play. And then this, there's hubris in him taking responsibility and running away to Ashtel. 
I mean, why should he take responsibility for something that someone else, uh, allegedly an adult, chose to do? But he does. And that comes across as cowardly and scared and frightening and very, very real. I challenge anyone who is that close to their family to have something happen to someone that they love, especially his, you know, his beloved sister's only child. And they feel like you failed him and failed the galaxy and failed the order and all things that you had set up and worked so hard to do and you beat the Emperor and Vader and and yay, we reunited the Ewoks and all this kind of stuff. But then bad things happen. And it's, I mean, I'm starting to babble now because I just, you could spend this entire show only talking about the character Luke Skywalker, not scratch the surface of the psychology of this man. Yeah, no, I think that's great. That I mean, it's, it's absolutely, it's realistic, you know, and, and I think that you did an excellent job explaining how this would be the way an actual person would react. And I don't want to add too much to that because it was beautiful. But I will say um, that there's also precedent in fiction for characters' development in this way. You know, that mm-hmm. I think specifically, and this is the thing I've said to many people, it's like, have you read Dune? Because you should. Because A, it's awesome. And and B, you have uh, Paul Muad'Dib, who becomes, he's the, the Kwisak Harak. He becomes kind of, he's, he's the Luke Skywalker of that story. And he has his kind of traditional hero's journey in the first first book. Uh, but then he he takes a dark turn. Dune Messiah. He is like, he is the legend and he's all these, you know, things he's revered. And then he ends up at the end of that book, spoiler alert, he ends up blind and wandering off into the desert and he's completely disillusioned. And he spends most of the third book just out in the wilderness all by himself. And there's just whispers of him. And then finally he kind of comes back and redeems his story. It's very similar to Luke's in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, It's it's classic Joseph Campbell. Absolutely. And that's that's what I'm getting to is that there are precedents for this time. This like the hero's journey is does not end in that way. You don't just I'm the hero's journey, I sit on the throne, I'm King Arthur. It's all of these things where you're like things get bad again, you have other problems. You're not done just because you finished one cycle through. Yeah, you're not a roast. You know, you don't come out of the oven and you're ready. <laughs> you know, there's 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 yeah. always <laughs> marinating to be done. It's <laughs> a good way to put it. There you go. Uh, so anything else uh, in cinematography? I have a couple of more things in cinematography that just kind of just quibbles or things that I thought were cool. Um, you mentioned the rain earlier, Matt, and I just wanted to say, again, like awesome pull for the raindrop being transferred as, mm-hmm. you know, precedent setting for Rise of Skywalker. That's that's a great pull. I did not catch that. So kudos to that. Um, kudos to you on that. The one thing that always bugs me, and I want to hear what you guys had to say about this, is the way... Uh, the composition of uh, on crate where the resistance is on the right and the first order is on the left. Because my understanding is that traditionally speaking, and you see this bared out in Empire, that you have the rebels are on the left and the Empire is coming from the right. And so when it's inverted in Attack of the Clones, Lucas did that. And I think it was in the commentary. I've, I've heard, I can't remember where, I wish I could. He inverted it there where you have the separatists coming from the left where the rebels were and you have the Republic coming from the right. So as for you to see something is jarring here. I'm a little bit confused about which side I'm supposed to be rooting for. And so when I saw that set up in last Jedi, I was like, what are we trying to, are we trying to say something or is it just, it just looks cool. You guys have any, any thoughts on that? Have you heard that? Uh, that school of thought for composition, or am I just totally off my rocker? 
No, you you are on your rocker. You rock on. <laughs> so, so yeah, if if memory serves, the, the the resistance is on the right. The first order is on the left, right? Yep. the The left hand would be like the right, the suspicious, the the uncomfortable, the supernatural hand. The right is the the side of right, the side of goodness. Um, I, I think a more interesting thing is, is the fact of how the way that it's shot and the fact that the plane is salty and white, but then when you smear it, you've got the red, which yep. is because it's a kid's movie and we, they want to emphasize the fact that there is blood, there is loss, there is major cost, but they try to paint over it with a sheen, um, but it's still salty and, and it adds flavor and taste, but it also muddies the waters of what's going on. Uh, so that that's all I really have for that, but it doesn't bother me with the right and left because that's more like back in line with the tradition of what's actually going on in the galaxy. For me, it's it's kind of like the unwritten rules of baseball. Mm-hmm. They don't matter unless they do. It, it's just like, <laughs> it's, it's one of those things where it's like, if you're using it, fantastic. And if you're not, then, oh, well, we move on. Yeah. And, and in a lot of ways, that's what this movie feels like for me is a departure from relying on the past too much. Yeah, and, and, much. and pushing forward into kind of a new era of Star Wars, or at least I thought it was. It was. It was a good, a really good, <laughs> yeah. a really good start. Yeah. And then we uh, got on a, a yo-yo. Yeah. <laughs> well, I I will freely admit that that I'm a nerd about these things, and I will get into the you're, weeds pretty deeply on that stuff. You're uh, in good company. Some, and, some, <laughs> and sometimes pro- try. You know, sometimes it's it's just a th- it's just because it looks cool. Right? No, no. There, There's there always no... a reason. <laughs> um, along with that, so uh, I do want to talk about um, the color a little bit. There's so much red in this film. Red palm bloom, the red Praetorian guards. Uh, we talked a little bit about the red. There's a character named Rose. There's yeah, a character red. named Rose. Good, yeah, good pull there. Uh, the well, red and, in, in and the fire and room. flames are a huge recurring yep. symbol throughout the whole film too. But I will say the one thing, the one thing that pulled me out of the film, and I'm not sure where else to put this other than here because it's a color, is is the blue lightsaber. As soon as Luke pulls the blue lightsaber on Crate, I knew something was up because we just saw it blow it up uh, on the Supremacy. I think that's the name of the ship, right? The Supremacy. It is. It is. Uh, you know, just a few seconds earlier, and I love that it is now. I have I've kind of I've figured out my interpretation of why it would be that one. But I find it interesting that, and again, we just kind of go with it, like why Kylo would look at that and go, yeah, that seems legit because I just saw that float up. Why is it not the green lightsaber? Because I wanted it to be the green light. I wanted to see Luke use the green lightsaber. Sure. But it's the blue lightsaber. And I'm curious what this, what, is, what are your guys' interpretation of why it's the blue lightsaber? I and I know I just put one. you on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I want to say, but I want, I want Matt to go first. Oh, you go ahead, Dan, because I, I, I don't have anything. <laughs> I I think it's, I mean, from uh from our from as an audience, it has to be the blue one because that's the mythology, that's Luke Skywalker's legacy, that's his history. But should it be right? Most of what he does as a Jedi is with the green lightsaber. However, he spends most of that time in travel, and training, and semi secret. Right, so the blue lightsaber would be one very familiar to Ben Solo, and that's who he's facing. I mean, his name is Kylo Ren, but he calls him Ben. You know, he thinks of him as his nephew. He's not. He doesn't say Kylo Ren to the way he says Ben. Right, 
And Ben will be very familiar with the story of that blue lightsaber, which Luke had for a good three years before he lost it. Uh, and this is before the Charles Soule comics, so we're going to stick to what we know in the in the language of the films themselves. So that, to me, that's where the way it has to be. It has to be that because that's his Excalibur to a degree, isn't it? That's that's the legacy. That's the legend. I agree with Dan. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I, I, uh, be sure to follow us all over. Good Lord. Uh, no, I, I agree with that, too. I, I, I look at it as I, all of that plus, like, this is the lightsaber that Ray offered to him. That this is him accepting the quest that she tried to put him on at the end of Force Awakens. That this is him, yep, I'm going to do that. Because we really get all of those things. She tries to hand it to him again right before she leaves uh, uh, Octo as well. You know, one more time, she tries to hand it to him. And you also have him earlier in the film saying, what am I going to just go out and you know face the entire First Order with a laser sword? And then he does that. So he's like, he's following through on all of these things that she wanted him to do. So he's taking up that Exc Excalibur again and so it makes sense that it would be that symbolic uh, traditional you know history historical uh, artifact the problem with that though is that ray's not there and he knows she's not there or i mean i you presume he can see that she's not there i mean he can see everybody else he's able to kiss his sister on the head and wink at r2d or c3po and blah 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 but yeah that that would certainly play in for what ray how ray would want to tell the story and so we could follow that train of logic to say this is how he wants to inspire. And of course, who else would he want to inspire more than Ray? Yeah. No, I, I, I hear you. There is, see, you just shot down my theory, but no, I didn't. I think, I think, I think we, I think we massaged it. No, oh, there, oh, there you go. Yeah. This is again, it, we're, we're doing a lot meat. of cooking. I don't know what that is about. I'm not even a cook. Rub the spices <laughs> Must into be hungry. it. That's right. <laughs> well, no, I mean, there is a lot of, you know, his appearance is very much meant to evoke what it was for Ben. So like a lot of that, performance for lack of a better term is is for ben right he, like i look Absolutely. like and so then you could also make well you know the last time i faced you i had the green lightsaber and that was a choice i made that maybe i yeah. shouldn't have made or what make you him more angry right but now i've brought the blue one back and of course there's history with that so yeah. i love that there's not a definitive answer exactly and that to me that's again the, the ambiguity yep. is the best part I don't For want to sure. be told what to think. I want to be encouraged to think. And that's what we want with our students. Yep. So one other thing that that uh, stood out to me was the Rashomon, which is the term for the effect where you have different characters who are kind of relaying different versions of the same story from their perspective. And we get it three times, uh, twice from Luke, once from Kylo. And I just think that it's, uh, I mean, it's some great storytelling, but I do... I do kind of think that like that was, I think the thing that for me pushed The Last Jedi out farther ahead than a lot of the other Star Wars films because it was so different. And this is one of the things that, you know, rewatching these movies, it, it has struck me that there seems to be a lot of um, nostalgia baiting of, you know, little, little things in the Disney era Star Wars of, you know, here's a little bit that you remember from the original trilogy. And while it's fun, I, I also want, Star Wars to grow beyond that, to become something new and something different and something more than what it was in the past. And I love it for what it was in the past, but it's also <laughs> at the same time, you know, this is a a, um, a technique that Akira Kurosawa used in, in his movies. Uh, so it's also a nod back to Lucas as well, uh, just in a different way. What are your guys' thoughts on 
The Last Jedi and this idea of Star Wars becoming something a little different. I know this is kind of a, a larger thought, but uh, this is this is what struck struck me watching it this time is, um, you know, Dan, I, I kind of want your opinion, you know, with more and more Star Wars coming out. We have, I don't know, like 11 different TV shows and I'm sure more movies on, on the way. So, you know, is Star Wars always going to be kind of reliant on the original trilogy or does it kind of push into something different? I, I think if it does, then Star Wars is not going to stand the test of time. I think there has to be growth. There has to be change. There has to be advancement. I mean, I, I know I'm a broken record if people follow me on social media, but to me, the Marvel Universe is the template extraordinaire for this because they've got plenty of great characters and legacy stuff to hang on, but they don't. They use it as a springboard to grow. And that's why I love The Last Jedi so much. When I left the movie the first time, I thought, oh my gosh, this is everything I didn't know I needed Star Wars to be. It actually took it and reinvented itself and pushed it in a new direction, a very bold, thought-provoking direction. And that, to me, that's the that should be the only option to have. The Mandalorian does it from a much more limited narrative structural perspective, but still using the nostalgia as a vision quest for the future instead of just marinating in what was. I mean, at some point, all of us who grew up with the original trilogy are going to move on to the great beyond ourselves. It's going to rely on other generations to take this story and move it forward. I love Star Trek, but it would be disingenuous to honestly say that Star Trek has thrived throughout history the way Star Wars has. Star Wars needs to... I think Star Trek continues to reinvent itself, but it's the same formula. Star Wars needs to take different approaches. The Last Jedi looks at the, these classic archetypal characters and makes them human and challenges what they are, what it means to be good, what it means to be evil, what it means to collaborate and work together, and how you find that, how you take those, you deconstruct those myths and those ideals that you have and, and try to think about, well, yeah, maybe they worked before, but do they still work now? I mean, Yoda is like, go burn, let's burn the, let's burn this tree, man. Let's burn these books. They're not exactly page turners. You weren't going to read them anyway. Let's move on. Let's move on to something else. That's what I think. That was almost like a subconscious thing to me as a fan. Where I'm like, yes, I do. I do need to move on a little bit. Let's do that. I can't wait to see what happens. And then we didn't. <laughs> and 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 that's really. I'm going to do my very very best not to be that guy about the rise. If if I come out for the rise of Skywalker, <laughs> yeah. it would be a whole different uh, song I'd be singing. So I'm not sure if I quite answered your question, but in essence, I think it has to, and I I desperately want it to. I love the answer. Um, and and for the record, I'm that guy on Rise of Skywalker too. So oh, man. you're in good company. Man. <laughs> um, I kind of <laughs> ebb and flow on that. I think I'm, I'm back on the, yeah, it kind of sucks now. Um, but, you know, I, I and I'm that guy too that, that when I first saw it, I was like, I'm not sure how I feel about Last Jedi when it was over. Because, you know, we mentioned earlier with like my uh, obsession with the, <laughs> with the composition of left to right in the battle. I'm kind of like, okay, I need to see this. I need to see this. I would like to see someone lose a right hand in the second movie, please. <laughs> um, you know, this is kind of how this needs to go. Uh, because, I, you know, I'm very much like the ring theory thing. I, I love that. I mean, that's one of like the big things that I love about Star Wars. First, the first six. You know, I love to see the parallels between Anakin and um, 
in, in Luke's life, you know, the, those mirrored hero's journeys, the inverted hero's journey for, for Anakin. Uh, and that's one thing that I've been spending a lot of time with my students. Hey, this rhymes with this. What does that remind you of? That kind of stuff. It's, that's kind of been my focus for the last few years. So this kind of takes that and turns it on its head. The more I watch it, the more I appreciate it. But I remember, you know, rumors, there's going to be flashbacks. There's no flashbacks in Star Wars. There's no voice. So we Even Pablo voice, said that on social media. Right? Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. This is just not a thing. Well, we haven't done it. And then, but I guess, you know, we actually had because there's flashbacks in Clone Wars, like, like with Ahsoka and whatnot. They're, they're in there. They're not, they're not a lot, but there's, there's little things like even Empire had slow motion in it. I mean, there's these little things we forget. We kind of gloss over some of these things. Uh, but this film has has flashback. It has has voiceover a couple of times. It has like Ray telling the story of her in the mirror cave to Kylo while it's happening. Mm. You know, there's some really fascinating. And like I'm watching this last, I'm like, wait a minute, that's she's talking. That's later than this is. And oh, okay, that's a, that's a very modern <laughs> filmmaking technique in this you know ancient Star Wars stuff that we're that we're enjoying. And it works. There's no reason that it can't work as long as you're, and I love what you said, Matt, too, about you're kind of going back to the source, right? That like, don't make Star Wars have to be based on Star Wars. Star Wars based on the things that Star Wars is based on is where to go. So go back to Kurosawa, go back to Flash Gordon, go back to Joseph Campbell and pull from those because there's, there's so many more of those things that have not yet been tapped into and inserted into Star Wars. And it's so it can still be a natural extension of Lucas's original vision without being, you know, this just mutated version of what we already know. And yet another wonderful thing that I like so much is that uh, how quickly we forget uh, for years, people were tired of George Lucas and they want And now there's a new rumor that he's taking over. That Hilarious. is not happening. I guarantee you. That is not happening. There, there is just there's something so unusual about all of that. I mean, to me, and I'm going to try to I'm trying to think of a, a good um, way to say this, but in my opinion, if you're watching whether it's the Last Jedi or any movie, if there are things that happen that are different than what you're used to, like let's take the Loki premiere for example, if there are things that you don't like or don't understand or doesn't feel like what you're used to, then ask about it, talk about it think about it. Don't just say it's wrong because it's not what I'm used to. Try to understand. I think there's a, when I saw that cave sequence, I thought, oh my gosh, like I actually have goosebumps now. Oh my gosh, this is so profound and more profound than anything since the, the cave on Dagobah. What is going on here? I can't wait to unpack this thing. A lot of people are going to be upset by this because they're not going to understand it. But just because you don't understand it doesn't mean that it's not good or that it's not important or that it's not smart. Now, you can just take it and enjoy it. And if it doesn't work for you, hey, God bless you. You don't have to like everything, nor should you. That would be really boring, quite honestly. But there is a lot there. And that is a great prime opportunity for real rhetoric and conversation. Absolutely. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox <laughs> for about 10 seconds. <laughs> that, that's what this is. This is this is a place to soapbox. Yes, yeah. that, that, uh, that is true. I think that, you know, for all the things that Last Jedi does different, what I love about it, though, is the soul of the movie, if movies do have a soul, is so innocent and hopeful. And it feels to me like a lot of the classic Star Wars films. I mean, Rey is such a uh, faith-filled, hopeful character. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you got you got Chewie and 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 Leia, who is a wonderful character in this movie, and we haven't talked about her yet. You know, but there's just this boundless hope, and and the end, the last scene of Broom Boy, I, I love and will always love uh, because it's such a, I don't know, it just strikes me as this innocent, hopeful. It's the same thing with like Luke staring off the binary sunset where, you know, this kid is, is going to be the next Luke. And I love the fact that that Ray is a nobody. I think thematically it is just brilliant because it is, and people have said this term before, you know, democratizing the force where it wow. is making the force available to everyone. And I think that is such a beautiful statement that everyone can have connection. Everyone can have empathy Everyone can find hope. And so, you know, you have the the different camera work and the different cinematography and the flashback and, and, you know, all that stuff that on the surface is different. But then deep down, it's, it's, it's Luke, <laughs> you know, in, in A New Hope. I mean, that's the name of the movie. And, and that's what it comes back to again and again is, is hope. Poe when they're they're you know in the in the cave and he says we're going to be the spark that lights the fire that burns the first order down you know he learns what that true leadership means and it's inspiring others to be hopeful and that's what and then he was forgets all about. in the rise of skywalker <laughs> weirdly <laughs> can't wait yeah. till we get to that one you know we, we talked last, last episode matt about how characters that i care about are the ones that have their own theme songs <laughs> and uh we get a new one in this one for Rose, which I love her theme, which again we don't hear in Rise of Skywalker. Small, small dig there. Wait, was uh, Rose it's, it's, in Sky in Rise of Skywalker? <laughs> I, I, I don't think, so. I think she was an unnamed extra. Oh my gosh. Oh, so sorry. sorry. What I wanted to say is how much I enjoy her theme. And and once you recognize what it is, you hear it a ton. Yes. Uh, which is something to to kind of look great. for. Um, but I did uh, going back to Ray though, too, is I love the use of of her theme in this film, uh, especially when she picks up the saber after Luke has tossed it, uh, which, by the way, humor in Star Wars—it's always been there. Um, she True. picks it. Up, she picks it up, uh, and she. Well, first she's—you know—she's been kind of using her little staff and doing her thing, and and then picks up the lightsaber, and then her theme cuts in, and it's beautiful and it's soaring, and you have this great like, shot and wide shot of Luke up on the hill watching. Yes, thank you, uh, <laughs> thank you Dan, watching her from a distance, and it's majestic. And then she cuts through the rock and Williams beautifully, Mickey Mouse is that thing. And music cuts out immediately just to add to the humor as the rock rolls down the hill and just destroys that cart. So it's like he just knew how to push the buttons with that so so beautifully because you're just like, yes, everything is wonderful. And now she's still screwed up. It's true. I'm just waiting for when you give me the green light to talk about why it's important that Ray is a nobody. But I can save it. I will definitely save it. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. So here's my last. Here's my last music thing. Uh, Luke and Leia's theme, because I'm always looking for light motif and like mm-hmm. I'm I'm all first time through. I'm like I'm, I've all I got a checklist. <laughs> Again, I got to hear the Force theme. One the here. David W. Particular. Collins School. Yeah. Oh yeah. Love David w, David W. Yes. Collins soundtrack show is yeah. Love that Genius. show. Mm-hmm. So good. Uh, when you hear Luke and Leia's theme here, when Luke shows up on crate, is so beautiful because it's such an I, I think it. I hate to say underused. It's it's very rare, which I guess I mean that's why it's one of the reasons I appreciate it so much is that it's used so infrequently. It's used, you know, just two other times to my recollection. It's used when in Return of the Jedi, when Luke tells Leia their brother and sister, and what a great and powerful scene that is. So 
to have that we're brother and sister here. And then you hear it once again when Leia tells Han, much smaller, but to have that scene from Return of the Jedi kind of echoed through here where they're reunited uh, to kind of bridge those two scenes to the power of that because you're already, you're connecting to that scene in Return of the Jedi as well. Uh, when I heard that, I was, I was like, I probably, I didn't let out a, a squee, but I, I probably could have. <laughs> I was very excited to hear that theme uh, in this film. That 15-minute segment, 15 to 17-minute segment is perfection. The, the music is a primary reason for that, as is the lighting and, of course, what happens. But that whole thing, it, it has to be let off by that theme because it's a, it, it gives us as an audience permission to feel those feelings from 1983 and see them together because it makes it so official. And it, when you first see it, and I, I certainly am not going to say that I knew Luke that was a, a Force hologram or mirage or what have you. I didn't think that. I thought that was Luke Skywalker after, you know, decoloring his beard like I need to do. <laughs> and I I thought the music has given me the green light to feel the 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 pathos of that. And it's it's I'm glad you brought that up because it's exquisite. And I do have to add that this is probably my my single favorite soundtrack of any Star Wars film. Wow. I yeah, I think Williams listening from beginning to end, I think this is my favorite one. I also love uh John Powell's work on solo. That's probably honestly uh, that's probably my second favorite. Uh, I, I absolutely adore the music from Solo, uh, but I think I think Williams just knocks it out of the park. I love Rose's theme. He's got a future. You know? <laughs> yes, and, and quite quite a past. Quite a past. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think you know, uh, talking about Rose, uh, one thing I, I loved was uh, Rose's necklace, and with yep. her sister. And the reason I love it is because in some ways it's used to torture her. And this is one thing, <laughs> Dan, just give me a funny look. It's one thing that I, oh, no, I no. teach students, <laughs> it's one funny. thing I teach students that when you're looking to create conflict in story, uh, one, one way you can do that is think about putting the character into their personal hell and, and have them dig themselves out of it. And this is something that I see several times in this film where the characters are forced by Ryan Johnson, the writer, to, to confront their biggest weakness or biggest fear, uh, whatever it is, that challenge, uh, like Poe, he gets his X-Wing taken away very early in the film. If given the choice, he would hop in an X-Wing and blow something up. That's who Poe is at the beginning of the movie. That's not who he is at the end, but he can't get there unless he's forced to change by having his thing taken away from him, his X-Wing. Mm. I think for, uh, for Rose... I think the necklace is is more of a symbol of how much she is willing to give up. It's kind of the last piece of her sister. Mm -hmm. And when DJ says, you know, give me the necklace or I'm not going to help you guys. She doesn't really hesitate, not very long, before she's like, take it. And that must have been so painful for her to lose that. And it's not that it's like I enjoy watching that. But I think from a dramatic standpoint, from a character standpoint, that is something that we don't see really in in like Force Awakens or Rise of Skywalker. And it's not the only way to write a movie or write a story, uh, but I do think it's a very interesting way. And, and you see it several times. And this is leading into, uh, back to Ray being a nobody. I think that's one of the toughest things for her to hear. 
because I think it would be easy for Ray to hear that she was the daughter of Obi-Wan Kenobi or the daughter of Luke. Uh, you know, I think that would be easy for her. And Ryan Johnson isn't interested in this film in doing what's easy for his characters. He wants to challenge them and to push them because that's the only way that they're going to grow. And his audience. He's yeah. not interested in giving his audience the easy way out Same. either. Hey, everyone. This is Matt from the future. Uh, we had a great conversation uh, with with Dan, and we went much longer than we were really expecting. And so after we had recorded, we decided to split the episode into two. So this is the end of, of, of part one, and part two will be coming out uh, two weeks from, from today, just on our normal schedule. Uh, and we'll continue our conversation with Dan and uh, discuss a little bit more about The Last Jedi. Yeah. So, Dan, before we get out of here, uh, why don't you tell everyone where they can find you on the interwebs and the internet and the World Wide Web and all those places? Yes, yes, yes. On your Google machines, boys yeah. and girls. <laughs> well, Matt and Craig, thanks, guys. This was insanely fun. This was even I was really fired up all day, and this is even better than I than I anticipated. So, thank you so much for having me on. You can find me on Twitter at Mr. Zer, M-R-Z-E-H-R. If you have a podcast or blog or want to start your own, I, you can certainly go to danzymedia.com. I can help you take that first step into a larger world. You can find my writing on starwars.com and occasionally on IGN. There is um, a book called The Star Wars Book, which you can find on amazon.com, which is part of the canon that I wrote with Pablo Hidalgo and Cole Horton. And of course, you can find me each and every week, twice a week, actually, on Coffee with Kenobi. We have Facebook Live Monday nights at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Standard Time. The regular show comes out on Thursdays and Coffee with Kenobi is all over social media. So just as we close, we want to say thank you so much for listening. If you would like to connect with us, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook, or you can email us at readingbetweenreels at gmail.com. And if you haven't yet, please join our Facebook group. It's a safe place to share your thoughts and discuss all things related to movies. 